Hi, this is Russ Teitelman, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. And welcome to another exciting edition of Fab Four Free For All, the weekly all-talk Beatles radio show on the internet or podcast or whatever you want to call it, which sounds sexy this week. And this week, I think podcast sounds sexy. Right. How's that? We'll go with that? Yeah, we'll, we'll go, go with that. that. Okay, good. So um, as you know, we do a lot of interviews on this show. And this week, we are very privileged, and so are you out in in uh, listener land. Is that is that a word, listener land? Yeah, we'll go with that, Okay, too. we'll go with that, too. Just making it up as we go along here. Yeah. This week, we are very privileged to have uh, on the phone with us uh, someone who has a connection to well you know pretty much every successful band that ever happened yes (laughs) thank you i mean this person is pretty much known as a producer but is also a very accomplished songwriter a musician what else you want to say every he's done it all bon vivant wow (laughs) did did we get going french here now Uh, why not okay so this person actually is uh russ teitelman so, Russ, say hi to everybody over at uh, Fab Four Free For All Land. Hello there. <laughs> we are very happy to have you on the show. Uh, you've worked with everybody from Nancy Sinatra, the Monkees, Dion, George Harrison, Bee Gees, Ricky Lee Jones, Eric Clapton, everybody. I mean, we, Randy Newman. I never, wait a minute, I never worked with Nancy Sinatra. You, you never did? No. Oh, right. then you know what? Then there goes the whole interview. There goes the whole interview. I was going to ask edit. you. I mean, oh, you know. <laughs> we were just uh, focused you know, on the Lee focused. Hazelwood sessions. But <laughs> just kidding. Oh, I, I did know Lee Hazelwood. In fact, when I started out when I was a kid working with Phil Spector, it was through Lester Sill and Lee Hazelwood. Wow. Oh, then wow. Now you're getting into Monkeyville, too. Yeah, really. Lester Sill. I mean, and, yeah, Lester Sill with the monkeys. And we know... We're going to get to that, too, because a lot of our fans who are Beatle fans are also big fans of the Monkees for obvious reasons. So we will get to all of that. So we, we wanted to really start off by asking you, why haven't you written a book? <laughs> you know, I actually started and then I kind of stopped. But I've been thinking, you know, and I thought I had a good start, but, you know, I just kind of. I don't know why. Lethargy or inertia or something. I kind of just stopped doing it. But, you know, I think I'll probably pick it up again. I'll probably pick it up again soon. Well, we're, we're right in New York, man. So if you ever want to bounce stuff off anybody, we're here. <laughs> okay. Let's start really the beginning. I mean, you've had such a storied career, but how did music come into your life? Well, music really was a part of our family. My parents were extreme music lovers and, and had a varied taste in music. So, like in the house, when I was a little boy, and I mean, you you know, ever since I was a little child, there was Lead Belly, there was Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, you know, good left-wing stuff, you know. (laughs) Uh, But also Beethoven and and Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong. Uh, My mother loved Louis Armstrong, so I heard a lot of Louis Armstrong when I was a little baby. You know, and, uh, you know, and Harry James and Dinah Shore and who else? Ella Fitzgerald, of course, and uh, Velma Middleton, who used to sing with, with Armstrong and Art Tatum. I mean, all this different kind of music and the Red Army Choir, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the Red Army Choir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Meadowlands. Wow. We played that record over and over again. Um, That's cool. And what else? You know, I mean, all kinds of stuff for lives. You know, sure. For lives was big back then. Yeah, sure. So then there was the radio as well. So 
also, and the Nat Cole Trio. That was big in my house as well, because I grew up in Los Angeles, and my parents told me that they used to go to a bowling alley on Vine Street and hear the Nat Cole Trio. Wow. Good you know, in the late that, 30s. Andy. Yeah. Some great stuff. Yeah. But as a matter of fact, though, you, you, one of your siblings was uh, dating someone who was a musician, and that got you involved elsewhere, correct? My my only sibling. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Susan. My sister, yes. My older sister, Susan, uh, was going out with Marshall Lieb, who was a few years her senior, and she's two and a half years my senior, so I was in junior high school, and Susie was seeing Marshall, and Marshall happened to be best friends with Phil Spector. So after they graduated Fairfax High School, Phil was studying to become a court reporter but he he was also a very very good jazz guitarist ironic twist about the court reporter (laughs) (laughs) no kidding yeah Uh, i never i didn't think of that Uh, (laughs) leave it to us we are sick and twisted (laughs) that's good you're you're on your game um but he started writing songs and he got annette kleinbard who later became carol connor's yeah, mm-hmm. uh, lyricist, and and Marshall, he and Marshall, and they used to rehearse in my living room. So I would come home from junior high school, John Burroughs Junior High School, and there they'd be. Wow, the teddy bears sitting around the living room rehearsing those songs: "To Know Him Is to Love Him" and "Wonderful Lovable You" and "Don't You Worry, My Little Pet." The Beatles did "To Know Him Is to Love Him" later on, right? Just so our listeners can connect the teddy bears, right? It's amazing, great stuff, though. Yeah. Now, so I would come home, and even then, I, I thought, this is amazing. You know, this is the life for me. And as time went on, I I became friendly with Phil and used to ride around in his car and listen to the radio and stuff like that. And I started taking guitar lessons from his guitar teacher and got good enough to do certain things. And he asked me at one point to come in and sing in a group for a demo that he was making for an artist that he was developing, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so we went to Gold Star, Larry Levine, and the microphone set up and a speaker there because they didn't have headphones in those days. Right. And we all were around this mic, and I think there were about five or six of us. Jane Bishop, who was my friend in high school, was also there. She could sing in tune. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we did this demo. So that was like the very first thing I ever did. And that ended up just so our listeners know, Russ, that was that the Paris sisters at that point, or that was actually no, no, no. This was like an artist who was like kind of a Jackie Wilson kind of singer. Oh, okay. And yeah, it was just a demo that Phil made. I doesn't exist. Okay, um, and that led uh, you know down the line to Phil asking me to come and play guitar on the Paris sisters record. And the first one we did was "Be My Boy," which I think we did at Radio Recorders. I think it was at Radio or Conway, and. uh John Randy played piano on that, I think. Johnny Clauder on drums. And I played the guitar and then sang in the group with the girls. So that was, he just cut that single. And then later, it was sort of, you know, a regional hit. And then later, Phil went to New York and got I Love How You Love Me from uh, Donnie Kirshner, Barry Mann song. And then we cut that record. I think at the time, we did a whole album, like went very quickly. Remember Howard Roberts was on guitar, Ed Shaughnessy was on drums. Ed Shaughnessy, great drummer for The Tonight Show for years and years later on. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 
So let me ask you a question. You, you mentioned Don Kirshner, and I just want to mention one quick thing. You know, he's gotten a bad rap uh, because of the whole monkeys thing. What did you think of Don Kirshner? I mean, I was there before the monkeys, 1964. So he was a legendary character then. Yeah. You know, the boy with the golden ears or something. What was his moniker? That was it, yeah. That was it. The guy with the golden ears. Yeah. The man with the golden ears. Yeah. yeah. And Phil respected him, and everybody respected him, and he and he had the best writers in the business signed to his publishing company. Carol King and Jerry Goffin and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and Howie Greenfield and Neil Sedaka. Now, and now you brought up two names, Russ, that would feature a little bit in your life particularly was was Barry Mann and yeah. Jerry Goffin who you would also co-pen with you would come over from west coast you were an east coast guy coming into that scene how was that a lot of the other folks in there i imagine were native east coasters you were coming as a, as a west coast guy yeah they were and all he, new yorkers yeah absolutely so was um, there were you were you taken under their wing i mean cuz you came over with Barry right with Barry Mann really well, I was I was immediately taken under the wing. Um, Lou Adler ran the Screen Gems office in Los Angeles, mm. and I had made a couple of demos of songs I had written, and I went into Gold Star with Gene Page and Billy Page and and Jimmy Bond on bass, who, by the way, was the bass player on Nina Simone's first album. Wow. Yeah, and then I guess he moved to L.A. and became a session bass player and was one of the wrecking crew. Sure. Yeah. Beautiful guy. So anyway, I went in, you know, Larry Levine into Gold Star, cut these demos really quickly, found a couple of girls to sing these songs that I'd written. And once we got them done, I took them to Lester Sill because I had known Lester through the Paris Sisters stuff. And also I was part of the group that Phil made couple of singles on called The Spectres 3. I actually sang and played on those records. They came out on Trey Records, which was a Phil Spector, Lester, Sill, Lee Hazelwood company. And Parasitter's records were on Greg Mark, which was Lester and Lee's company. Yeah. So I, I brought the demos to Lester, played them for him. He liked them. And he was in this little office building on Sunset Boulevard. And Screen Gems was upstairs, and he said, let me take this up to Lou. And so I think we went up there, or, or Lester took him up there. And Lou loved the demos, and I guess called Donnie, and I got signed as a writer to Screen Gems. So I would go over to the office every day. And publishing companies back in the day, I mean, it was utterly different than it is now. You know, Brian Wilson would come in and hang, and <laughs> and uh, David Gates was there, and... Uh. You know, all the all the songwriters around you just come like hang at the office, and um, <laughs> a day at work. You know, it, just, you know. it was yeah, a day at work. You know, it was a community of creative people. So one day I walk in, and Lou's door is open, and he says, "Come in here." You know, Barry and Cynthia are here. So I went all white because I thought it was like meeting George <laughs> and I were Gershwin. And, it's royalty. So, the royalty, absolutely. Barry Mann, you know, the legendary. You know, in he, my mind, he put you know, the bump. Like, I mean, he put the bump in the bump of I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 and all and all those other great things that he had already. Of written, course, you know. yeah. Uptown, they wrote the crystals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good God, yeah. yeah. And bless you, and blame it on the bossa nova. Anyway, so I walk in, and Barry says, "He says, man, I love that thing that you did. Come to New York, and we'll we'll work together." Hmm. 
That's a nice so, thing to hear. Wow, well, yeah. So then it took a few months. I kept asking them to send me to New York, and they didn't. I, mean, I guess they didn't want to, or they didn't want to pay for the plane ticket. So I said to Lou around Christmas, you know, it was in December, look, I'm just going to go to New York. And he went, all right, we'll buy your ticket. So I went right before Christmas, hmm. 1963. And that brings you into the Bro Building, and now you've got... That brings me into the Columbia Pictures Building, which is where Screen Gems was. It was 555 uh, Fifth Avenue. Well, that's true, because we we notoriously always put everything onto the Bro Building. You know, yeah. we talk about New York songwriting, and that really wasn't so much the case. The Bro Building was one of... A one of, one of the yeah. two main ones, 1650 Broadway was where Donnie Kirshner was, and right. Scepter Records was over there in Backrack. Right. Was right. over there, I guess. So anyway, you know, I started going up to the office there and, and going to Barry and Cynthia's apartment on 57th Street, way east, and we started, you know, they just welcomed me into the family. You know, I was like the little brother, hmm. and started writing songs with Cynthia, you know, we made the Cinderella's records with this really Margaret Ross from the Cookies and a wonderful girls from, from New Jersey. Yeah. Wonderful vocalist. And just fabulous. Yeah. And then, you know, I would go into the office and we'd go in a cubicle and write stuff. And they put me together with some other people. And I met Artie Kornfeld and, and uh, Tony Powers and, you know, a bunch of other people. You know, and then I met Jerry Goffin. Right. I introduced to Jerry, uh, and then he and I started writing together, and we had a very, very long and uh, close relationship. Yeah, from and then on. now at that point too, you're in those offices, and we'll go of course to the relationship with Barry and and the co-writing with Jerry. And but did you come across someone who you probably at the time did not realize you would be producing many years later? Did Paul Simon cross your path during that period at all? No, I never met Paul. Interesting. In yeah. those days, never met him. But, you know, there was another writer there named Steve Karliski, wrote country songs. He was fabulous. Uh, but anyway, to answer your initial question, what did I think of Donnie Kirshner? I thought he was brilliant, you know, and he was he was like a magnet for people, you know. All right, so you're in New York until when? I stayed for about a year, maybe not quite a year. Okay, so obviously you said you came here in November of 63, so about a year. December of 63, uh, right around Christmas time. Right. All right, so when did... Everybody in your world at that point take notice of the Beatles. Well, they came early in '64. Well, yeah. no, of course, but, but yeah, in but terms of the in fact terms of, of songwriting, yeah, the songwriting. I mean, these guys had been doing it, you know, pre-Beatles. These guys were, you know, the primary songwriters on the charts for all that time. Did you look at them as competition as songwriters? Well, I think. I, I mean, I was so overwhelmed by their stuff, you know, as many were. But when you think about it, I think that it was like an earthquake for people. Yeah. Um, because their stock and trade was being writers for other people. And the Beatles kind of opened the door for for singer-songwriters. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison loved all of the songs that King and Goffin wrote and Man and Wild wrote that you know, they recorded them themselves. Sure. You know, ch chains and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it's sort of, uh, I think it frightened people a little bit. And at the same time, everyone was so in awe of their amazing talent and, 
you know, the whole thing was just so unbelievable. And not to mention just like them calling attention to, uh, you know, the songs of Smokey Robinson and things like that. As you yeah. just said, they were also producing a revenue stream for people like Goffin and King. By oh, yeah. Going to some of those great songs that have been written in New yeah. York. And I'm so. sure that they were in awe of those songwriters themselves. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely a two-way yeah. street, well, for sure. John and Paul had both mentioned how influenced they were by Goffin and King. Yeah. How they oh, wanted yeah. to be like them and you know have that, that songwriting partnership. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh. But let me just add this. Sure. That um, when Hard Day's Night came out, Jerry and I went to see it. We went into New York to see it, and we went back to the, to the apartment that I was living in, in East Orange, New Jersey, and we sat down and we wrote this song, Yes, I Will, which, uh-huh. which, which, which is on the Monkees' first album, but it was also cut by the Hollies yes. and was, was a hit in England for the Hollies. Lovely version by the Hollies, too. And we should add that the song that the Monkees cut later on was I'll Be True to You, which includes the line, Yes, I Will. I mean, it was just changed a little changed bit. The by, they just changed it. Yeah, the, yeah it's, a, it's the same song. You know? yeah. Right. Move the parenthesis. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Wonderful but, song. But we went right home and wrote that song, but it was kind of written in the style of uh, If I Fell. You know, oh, that makes a lot the, of sense. The, the tempo was more like that. And then Carol made a demo of the song, and the Hollies did Carol's version. So which is and, better? <laughs> you know, she made it a hit, I think. Yeah. Well, it was an yeah. album cut on the Monkees because they had other hits, but that's truly, yeah. that's one of my favorite songs on that first Monkees but, but I think what Russ is implying is that Carol's right. rearrangement, yeah. I mean, Carol's demos were always so unbelievable. You went back to... They were unbelievable. You know, yeah, I mean, Mick, yeah. Yeah, Mickey Dolan's always said he hardly had to touch, you know, the Porpoise song. Or, or Pleasant Valley Sunday. Or Pleasant Sunday. Valley Sunday, because Carol would yeah. give it to them fully ripened, you know, which was yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, so let's cut to a, a few years later. You're influenced by, obviously, the Beatles by writing Yes, I Will. And then later on in life, and, and there's so much that we didn't get to, but I, I think to get to the George Harrison album would be perfect for now. George had not had a co-producer in a long time. And now... Interestingly enough, yeah. it had been, been Phil, Phil Spector. Spector. Yeah. Phil Spector, right. So this With, was coming off of, you know, so it was, it was years that, before. Right. But so you, yeah, you, Phil did the first, you know, his first album before. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. All things was passed. Yeah. So now, yeah. and, and it's funny how the world, you know, is, is so small because obviously you were good friends with and idolized Phil Spector and now yeah. you become the second co-producer of George Harrison. How does that happen? What transpires to make him come to you? Well, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that he co-produced the album before. Was the album before Cracker Box Palace? Yes. yes. It was yeah, 33 and a third. Tom Scott had helped with additional production. Exactly. As well. Tom got a co-production credit, right. I think. Yeah. But in any case, Mo Austin, you know, made a deal with George to distribute Dark Horse Records. And so when he came over to Warner's, I don't really know why he chose me. My guess is that Lenny Warnker and Mo suggested me. Your track record at that point had been extensive work with some of the great songwriters. I mean, your Randy Newman work, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, had been amazing. And, and I'm sure George was aware of that, especially knowing George's sense of humor, I'm sure. He appreciated Randy Newman no, for his brilliance. Absolutely, and and Lenny and I had also made uh, Gorilla and In the Pocket right. with James, James Taylor. Taylor. Right. Yeah, both right. brilliant records too. 
And, you know, you mentioned that that James Taylor was a big fan of people like Hoagie Carmichael and such. And George, we found out on 33 and a Third and one of his other albums, Somewhere in England, later, that he was also a big fan of Hoagie Carmichael. Did you get that sense when you were with him as well? I don't think he talked much about Hoagie Carmichael, but didn't he do a version of... uh True Love, the Cole sure. Porter song. Right, on, indeed. On, yeah. Baltimore, Baltimore Oriole he did later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he was a big fan. So I, I guess, you know, when you have uh, in the music world, people like James Taylor, who was signed by the Beatles Apple Company originally, you know, those people all really, I want to say, bond together. They have a love of music. So it's a full circle of Far music. reaching. I mean, far it, reaching. Yeah, far reaching. I and mean, as you were saying, you know, Russ was saying earlier about you having so much music in your home. And it was the same. I mean, the Beatles' influences were really the same as yours, certainly. And there was a, a huge crossover, I would imagine, same with what, age. yeah, same, same it, age. with what George was into and what you were intro, into. So, did that sort of create a, a a good scene going into the album that you guys both had a shared? Uh, and and did George appreciate your back history going back to the Carol King? You know, you know, I know we never really talked about that, but you know, once you're once. You know, look, I got the phone. I was in my office and I got the phone call. My secretary said, George Harrison was on the phone. And I, 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 I almost lost it. You know, I thought, oh, my God. And I ran into Lenny's office and I said, George Harrison's on the phone. Should I take the call? <laughs> no, no, let him hang. <laughs> so he said, of course, go back in there and take the call. So, so, uh, so, you know, I picked up the phone and there he was. And he said... Well, why don't you come over to the house? I have a bunch of demos I'd like to play you, and maybe we'll uh, talk about making a record. So that's exactly what happened. I went over there, and I still have the cassette that he played me with most of the songs that were on that record. Wow. Hello. We'll talk after it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Russ, I just want to take one step back about... Uh, you're now a producer at Warner Brothers in the 70s, and you've worked, like we said, with Randy Newman and Ricky Lee Jones. What was the attitude of Warner Brothers Records towards the artists, and and, and how did George Harrison, he was originally signed with A&M, and then it was a lawsuit, but he ended up at Warner Brothers. Was there any story on how he ended up at Warner Brothers? Because it was, it's Warner Brothers to me in the 70s and, and part of the 80s seemed to be a place where smart songwriters went to. Right. Yes, there was a stable of people there, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Randy Newman, Ry Cooter, uh, Van Dyke Parks, you know, really kind of some who were very successful and, and some who weren't very successful. Cooter never sold a lot of records back then. Right. But he was the darling of not just the critics, but, you know, of great musicians and great songwriters. They loved all those people. And Randy didn't sell a lot of records until we made short people. Right. Interesting. You know, his his first million selling record. You know, it just, hard to it believe in a way. Hard to believe. I mean, you things like "Sail Away" and "Political Science" and all these early tracks that that yeah. the world didn't discover, but they picked up on him with short people. So thank God for that. Yeah. But it's anyway. I'm a huge Randy fan, so kind of it was just yeah. a gateway Ugh. to the rest. Yes, gateway to everything. Else. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, exactly. Was there a story on how George ended up oh, at Warner sorry. Brothers? Instead of oh, some yes. other legend. well, well, you know, I think it was uh, it was thanks to Mo Austin and George and Olivia became very very close with Mo and Evelyn Austin, you know, like a, a real real deep friendship. And Mo's attitude, I suppose, 
was to hire good people and let them do what they do. And he kind of understood that that artists were, you know, what an artist wanted to do was sacrosanct. And you didn't kind of meddle. I mean, you certainly, if they were in trouble, you had people like Lenny and Ted Templeman and me and Tommy Lapuma there who could consult. Right. If somebody was in trouble. And so, you know, artists would have respect for what they were hearing from the company because the company was peopled by creative people, unlike what exists today. I mean, they're... Businessmen. It's up, yeah. It's upside down now. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, everything yeah. follows the business model as opposed to the art model. And the, the cart's pulling the horse. Yeah. But I think that was it. I think that Moe's philosophy was something that uh, that George understood. Well, uh, just on a, a collector thing, the, the $2 Warner Brother records they used to be able to send in two for. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Lo- those, Lost Leaders. The Lost Leaders albums were done with a great sense of humor. And I assume that working there had that similar sense of humor, but along with a love of music, um, just from just the way those liner notes were written and the way they were put together. Yeah. I think that was Stan Cornyn who did that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yep. And, and you also mentioned, by the way, uh, Tommy Lapuma, who ended yeah. up working uh, many, many, many years later with Paul McCartney on his first ever album of standards, Kisses on the Bottom. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah so I mean, yeah. that it, boy, it comes full circle. Yeah. And, you know, Tommy made the George Benson records, you know, uh, Masquerade and... <sighs> Masterpieces. Yeah. And George Benson also did The Other Side of Abbey Road. There you go. It's I mean, all, it all comes right. around. It's like all six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And then, and then I made a record with him. With uh, George, with Benson. George Benson. Benson. Oh, yeah. Okay. George Benson's a wonderful. Has, wonderful. Oh, that had some great stuff on it. I was it, just about to say, album. that was a great record, too. Uh, Russ, you, you were talking about here you are, you get this uh, set of demos from George Harrison yeah. to, to go towards a, a new album. Yeah. And uh, among the demos, you know, when, when he gives you not guilty, does he play you the working demo from 68? Does he play you a newly created demo? Are you aware? No, no, it was the, it was the original demo. It was just him and the guitar. So back from 68, back from the very early. Yeah. So were you, yeah. now did you know going in that you're now about to tackle a song that George had put the Beatles through 100 plus takes of? <laughs> And you were now going to be, I mean, he tormented them with that song. And now did you know you were going in to go finally put this puppy to bed and say this is the definitive version of this damn song? You know, I didn't know that about that song. I yeah. didn't know that he tortured uh, them. Yeah. <laughs> tortured. Tortured. And yeah. it was a very oh different song. It was a very different song, too. It was very hard, as opposed to the jazzier style that ended up on George Harrison. Yeah, the absolute. It was yeah. very 1968. Yeah. Very yeah. 1968, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it was, it was, like, harder and... Uh, much. Yeah, much yeah. harder yeah. edged, yeah. Very, ni- yeah. very, like Rob said, very 1968, uh, screaming guitars. It was not the acoustic jazz song that, that, that you guys... That beautiful piece of music right. that came out on George Harrison. We all got nervous when we saw that title in 1979, yeah. and we didn't know what was going to happen. But So what, what are your recollections of some of those demos right off the bat? Well, Blow Away was there. Mm. Right. In a, you know, in a rudimentary form, but it was there. You could tell. Like, this is a hit song. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Love Comes to Everyone was there. <sighs> Same thing. You know, it just was so, so beautiful and charming and, and uh, kind of like a great, they were like great pop songs. Yes. Right. Yes. You know? Yeah. 
And there were a couple of things that maybe were a little more, uh, you know, off-center. Mm, uh, soft-hearted Hannah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Soft-hearted Hannah. And, and I love Here Comes the Moon. You yes. know, that's uh. a great, beautiful song. And uh, actually, he didn't have Dark Sweet Lady. And I was a little, may have in some way been responsible for him writing that song because I said to him, you know, we don't have a love song. Why don't you write something like about Olivia? Yeah. Wow. That was. A... And he went to Hawaii, and he came back with that song. Oh, oh a beautiful song. Yeah. The acoustic and guitar. And we cut it. And we we cut it in Los Angeles. When he came back from Hawaii, we went into the studio with Emil Richards, Milt Holland. Emil played the marimba. Marimba, yeah. And I asked Gail Levant to come in, and she played the harp. Oh, beautiful. On that record. She came up with that part, you know? Yeah, which is gorgeous, the arrangement. She, she's also on Mexico. She played on Mexico. She comes oh, in. Oh, wow. Yeah. And That's she's cool. on Tears in Heaven. I put her on Tears in Heaven on the original. Wow. Uh, wow. On the original record. It's like, if you listen to it, the whole environment is just, you know, you don't notice it, but then all there's this environment, and it's harp, two harps. Oh, um, cool. Uh, but we went in. Who else? I think Willie. Weeks Willie Weeks. Yeah. Bass. Yeah. Yeah. I think Willie played. And Andy Newmark's on drums. Andy on drums. Right. Yeah. Brilliant group of musicians for that record, Russ. So you felt probably going in that you really had a home run from George. I would imagine. I mean, you, you know. I I thought that it was going to be a really really great record, and he had uh, the demo of Your Love Is Forever was Oof. just the guitar part. Right. Mm. That's such and a beautiful so, song. It's so beautiful, and I listened to it, and, and I said to him, and he actually, in one of his books, he said that I pushed him to finish the song. I said to him, look, this is beautiful. You have to write a lyric for this. It's fantastic. So he did. Wow. You know, he Russ, when, Russ, when you tell George Harrison to write a lyric, is that part of what you do as a producer? And what did you bring in as a producer knowing that George has also produced his own stuff and other people and working with George on, the, on a, I guess, a higher level. Probably a lot of, you know, the give and take that goes on there, Russ. How does that play out? Yeah, you know, once you're hired on, it's about the work. And, you know, my role was to just help him do it. I mean, this is a guy who made some of the greatest records ever made. Yeah. Within you, without you, for Christ's sake. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, you know? It comes from another planet, that song. And the sound of the record and the whole thing is just, like, unbelievable. And his other, you know, the rock and roll stuff that he did. He was a master record maker. What about as a musician? He's a great musician. I mean, ask any guitar player. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. It's so unique. You hear it. You know it's him. And his choices of chord progressions are very unusual. You know, if you listen to something... Here comes the sun. All these things, they have unusual chord progressions. You know, mm -hmm. diminished chords and augmented chords and all kinds of stuff that he did. And as someone with a background in jazz guitar yourself, and he must have appreciated your true understanding of that aspect of things, and it lent so much to the production of that album, I think. Well, in I my suppose opinion. so. You know, I mean, I, I suggested Andy and Willie and right. Neil Larson, because I had worked with Neil on... Uh, Greg Allman's record. You know, we're talking about George, and there's there's a connection with George also to someone that you worked extensively with, of course, which is Eric Clapton. 
he came to play on Love Comes to Everyone. Which he later covered. Which he later covered, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but he, he only really wound up playing in the intro of that no, song. Now, and why then is Winwood, that? And then Winwood took the solo. Oh, wow. I always wondered why he only did the intro, because you never really hear that, you know, someone gets credit just for the intro of the song. Right. Well, when it's Eric Clapton, you give him credit for the intro. Oh, yeah. Just kind of (laughs) unusual. Yeah. But that's just how it wound up. We had cut all our tracks and everything, and we were working, starting to do overdubs, and George said, well, why don't we call Winwood to come and do some work on this record? (laughs) So he calls him up. He drives down in his, his station wagon with the keyboards in the back, comes to Friar Park, goes upstairs, plugs in, you know, does the string parts on Blow Away. He was there for a while, and they sang harmonies on some things, and, you know, they had a great time. You know, he wow. played that solo. and Now, was that your first work with Steve Winwood? Because you ended up yes, working... that was... That's when I met Winwood, and that, of course, you ended up with a, in a wonderful relationship with Steve Winwood. I imagine and, later and a, with and a Grammy and a Grammy, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, we won six Grammys wow. for, that year for, for the Back in the High Life album. Yeah, brilliant record. Now, yeah. now I, I threw out Soft Hearted Hannah before Russ. How did you get to the the party atmosphere on that record? I mean, that was that his Rainy Day Women twelve and thirty five, or was that you know? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, he had, you know, look, uh, Eric, uh, Eric Idle was a very close friend of George's and he was around there a lot. And I think they just came up with the idea of doing it, you know, so they just, <laughs> just went for it. You but, know? but when someone brings you a song about a psychedelic <laughs> mushroom experience, yeah. what would you, would you, do you say, oh, brilliant, George, we'll, we'll do that. I mean. Do you have it? Do you say no? Do you have do you, any reservations? Any about reservation about that? Or did he make you then experience it with him? Or No, no, no. He, he did that on his own, unfortunately. Okay. Um, unfortunately, yeah. Um, but but uh, I just looked at it as whether it was a good song or not. Sure. And, and did you, you think know. it was at the time? Cause yeah. it, it, I did. I liked the song. It's wonderful. It's a lot of fun, and it's different on the album. It, you've also got a couple of different, you know, as you use the term sort of atmospherics, but you've also got the effects in Faster, you know, yeah. on the album too, which brings unique feel to that album. The, yeah. Those open and close. How did that come about? You know, was that an idea of George's, or did you think to include in that? The uh, sound effects? Yeah. The racing, yeah. yeah. That was him. That was George. Interesting. Absolutely. Interesting. You know, and he was a Formula One guy. Sure. Yeah. And in fact, while we were making the record, I remember uh, Peterson, a Swedish race car driver who was killed. Later on, yeah. Later on. But he came came over to visit. Well, Jackie Stewart came over to visit. <laughs> All these guys. And he loved Nicky Lauda. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then, oddly enough, there was that movie that was just on HBO called Rush. Yes, about, about Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. It was a brilliant movie. And I didn't really know all of those details until I saw this picture like a week or two ago. Wow. And, of course, the first thing I thought of was Faster. Yeah. And uh, what an amazing story. Yeah. Well, it's funny because yeah. that song itself gives you a sense of of the whole life of a Formula One race car driver. 
Yeah. In, in four and a half minutes. It's also a personal song because yeah. it's not just about the auto racing. It's about being in the celebrity. Exactly. It's being in, in front of a crowd, you know, that type of thing. He related to it. I think oh, yeah. He, he was yeah. walking the high wire. For, he he wrote it for his racing friends, but of course, it, a lot of it's about George Harrison, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. There's Sorry. another thing. There was, there was a song called Save the World, which went on the next record. And I didn't really think that it fit in with everything else that we had, and I kind of stood up for not having it on the record. Good for you. Good for you. Because yeah, it doesn't f- fit. It wouldn't have fit. You're absolutely yeah. right. Not on that record. Yeah. And, and that's what yeah. my next question was going to be. There's a certain sound on this record. There's not a lot of heavy guitars. There's not a lot of loud Van Halen-type songs, rock songs. Was there any pressure from the record company towards George or to you as a co-producer to say, hey, George, we need a real rock and roll song. You know, Blow Away is going to be a good single, but we need a real rock and roll song. Was there any pressure from anyone uh, outside? No, there wasn't. And there wasn't at all. And, you know, there would never be what you would call pressure from the record company. There might be a suggestion from someone like Lenny Warnker, who, if he thought that, he would have called George directly or called me or both of us and said, what about doing something like, uh, you know, one of his other songs? You know, and in fact, Lenny did that when I was making Eric's record, Journeyman. We had cut everything, and Lenny came to New York and listened to everything, and he said, you know, it'd be really great if you had, like, a, a Layla-like guitar thing, a song that had one of those things on it. And then he wrote Bad Love. Wow. Oh. And yeah. that completely changed the dynamic on that record. Interesting. Yeah. Not a pressure, but a sort of suggestion. Yeah, creative suggestion. Creative now, exactly. Now, I know you were not on board for the follow-up, Russ, but that changed a little bit with Somewhere in England, though, when George brought in that first edition of the album. And then there were four songs that were... Taken off. Taken off, Pressure yeah. to take them off. Mm. No, I didn't know if you knew what was happening at that point in the mix with George. It was two years later. You know, yeah. I, I don't really remember that. I, okay. I don't think that I was in the mix. Yeah. It was a whole different scenario. Did you end up staying in touch with George? Yes, absolutely. And still I'm close with Olivia to this day. So nice. you must be proud to see Danny doing the, uh, the oh, Harrison God. estate. You know, you like you see him. He looked exactly like yeah. George. Very, he very. The same kind of sense of humor, and you know, it was a brilliant kid. And mm. you know, when he was a kid, he was just really brilliant. When he was a little boy, you know. Well, look who had as a teacher. You know, George loved banjo uke. Sure. Mm-hmm. There was an artist during World War II and after named George Formby who played this instrument. Sure. And George went nuts over it, you know. And then Danny learned how to play the thing. You should go on YouTube, look up George Formby. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. We, 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 we know big, who he is. Really? Yeah, you yeah. know, it, it's funny because Paul now in, in all of his tours does a tribute to George doing something, but he starts off playing the uke because George told Paul, you must learn how to play the ukulele. So he, he said George had 20 ukuleles in the back of his car every, you know, all the time. Yeah. And, Right. Here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go. So, yeah. Are you, are you in, in possession of a George Uke by any chance? You? I am not, unfortunately. <laughs> but so, you have the demo tapes for that George Harrison album. Yeah, so, so you got you know. something better. So yeah. I, I, I know we're running short on time, but I wanted to ask well, you one thing that's non-George Harrison related, if you don't mind. Because we all are very big fans of Simon and Garfunkel, and Tony had mentioned the Hearts and Bones album. You were there in the beginning, and we know the story about how it was supposed to be a, a Simon and Garfunkel project. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. can you can you lead, can you talk about that at all? Well, yeah, it started out being a, a, a 
Paul Simon solo record, and, and uh, actually it started in Los Angeles, and Lenny Warker and I were supposed to be the co-producers of that album. And what happened was when we cut Song About the Moon, Late Great Johnny Ace, and what was the other one? I can't remember what the other song was, but in any case, Paul went back to New York to write more, and Lenny became president of Warner Brothers Records, so he couldn't continue on the record. So I went to New York to to work with Paul, and we were going along, you know, and we cut Hearts and Bones and a few other things. We did Allergies, and Cars Are Cars, and Think Too Much, and... And the other thing too much. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing too much, yeah. He thought too much. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, it was going to be a Simon Garfunkel record. So Artie came in and started doing harmonies and sang a lead on Renee and Georgette Magritte, I believe. Oh, wow. And then, you know, they just couldn't get along. So Paul said, look, I'm I'm just not going to do it. Would it have been a really good Simon and Garfunkel album? I think it would have been a great one, yeah. I think so too. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, but he's heard. He heard it. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, now, Russ, the the story is is that Paul got rid of all the vocals permanently. Like, there's no backup tape. Is that a true story, or is that? Are we gonna, is that going to be a Sony Legacy? I mean, a Warner Brothers uh, Rhino Handmade those, edition? You, know, you, have to, you have to ask Steve Berkowitz that question. Oh, we know Steve. We have his number. We'll yeah. give him a call. We know Steve. <laughs> Steve worked on the uh, Mono uh, Box, Mono the, Box the vinyl, for the Beatles. The vinyl. Uh, well, we were, that's where we met Russ. That's where we met you, Russ. Right. That's right. At the, yeah, I, I, went you. Two, I went to two of those listening. Did you have an influence with Steve on why he played Within You Without You at the New York? Because that was an amazing choice. To yeah. play within you without you, I don't know. I yeah, because you were <laughs> just but saying. I'm very glad he did. Of everything that absolutely blew me away about the monos, it was that that just yeah. rocked my world at, at that you mono know, playback. When we saw you there that night, we saw you uh, had a really friendly hug for Ken Scott. What's your relationship with Ken? Because we love him. We've had him on the show a bunch of times, and uh, we think he's a great guy. So, I mean, do you have any no, feelings? I met him that night. I went up oh. and introduced myself. I was, like, beside myself. It was like meeting, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> meeting Marlon Brando. <laughs> Godfather or a freshman? No. <laughs> <laughs> on the waterfront. <laughs> there, you there you go. So let's go through some of those songs, if you don't mind, on the uh, George Harrison album. Yes, let's start off with Love Comes to Everyone. Uh, what what are your memories of the song besides Eric Clapton having just playing on the lead in the beginning? Well, I love the song, and George had worked with Willie and Andy before. I don't know if I was really aware of that. So when I suggested that band, he immediately said yes, you know, oh, great. And Neil Larson, who's such a great keyboard player, who's now in uh, uh, Leonard Cohen's band. Oh, wow. <laughs> cool. Oh, and I brought Lee Hersberg, who was our engineer for, you know, the Newman Records and Ricky Lee and and the James Taylor Records that we made. And Lee was Sinatra's engineer. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. But not so, Nancy Sinatra. Not Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> not Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> Although he may have made those Nancy Sinatra records for all Possible. <laughs> yeah. So it was like having a a team that you knew was going to do great. So yeah. I was never nervous that we weren't going to get anything. And and I have to say, I was somewhat nervous going in because I'd never really... I, well, we did Dark Sweet Lady before, so I knew things were going to be cool. 
Right. You know, we had a good there. relationship. Yeah. Was, this was not going to be an adversarial relationship. So when we cut that track, the sound of it really has a lot to do with Lee Hirschberg. And the band, you know, it swings in a different way. You, you know, if you notice that the backbeats are like tom-toms. Right. Which sort of, you know, I think I may have, I can't remember, I may have suggested it, because I was so enamored of the Tom Bell records, mm. the oh, Philly records, you sure, know. Sure. And, uh, you know, I heard it through the grapevine as all Toms, you know, and funky, you know, nasty sounding and great. Yeah. Soulful yeah. stuff, you know. So anyway, we had the right actors, the right musicians. So I think the record kind of took on a life of its own, a sound of its own. As you guys said earlier, there's a sound to that record. Sure. Definitely. Definitely. Now, when you hear a track like A Love Comes to Everyone, Russ, when yeah. does it when does it get to a point in the producer's work where you, you the thought bubble goes over your head, album opener, like this is it, this is what kicks us off? Or does did George say, I want the record to start with this? The sequencing is so important. So. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty sure we just agreed that that would be that was the, the, opener. the yeah. thing to kick it off. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant start. So as a producer, you have tricks oh, that you've learned along the way and how to get different sounds. And, and I was wondering what tricks did you use on this record that George appreciated? And did you learn any tricks from George as a, a co-producer on this record? Well, yes. I mean, every day I think I'd learn something because he, he'd come in and he even said, he said, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a great producer or a great record maker he says but i know how to put these bits together hmm. <laughs> you know that's true like it must have been in his brain already kind of constructed well in a way wasn't that george martin's forte as well was quote putting bits together you yeah. know I, I mean i think it's interesting george you know learned so much i'm sure from watching martin you know, yeah. he may not have realized how important that was to be able to quote put bits Maybe together. So. But it's what we all do. I mean, yeah. you're, like somebody comes up with an idea for, well, why don't we put this on here? Why don't we try something over here? And but he he was so great at doing the background parts and and the guitar parts. You know, they're layered a lot of layered guitar parts on this record. Yes, sure. And he had a chorus that he used that he liked, so that made a lot of the sound of that record was pretty consistent all the way through. Not on everything, but most things yeah. had that sound. You know, the key to all of that, I'm sure, is knowing how much of it to use and when and when to pull back and, and have it not become overused on, on a record. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and that's where maybe a producer could go, maybe it should be a little slower on this one. It's too obvious. It's moving too much. And, you know, so let's make it prettier and slower and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and just... Back just kind of help him along in the process. Yeah, bring it to fruition. Pretty and slower is a great way to describe this record. It's a, it's yeah. a slower album than, maybe except for Faster, really. That's a pretty fast song, considering. But this is... This and is, Blow Away has that has that yeah. wonderful kind of like... I don't know how, what you could blow away. It's, like, it's just such a wonderful, light, just brilliant track. And but anyway. Yeah. The next song, uh, song number two, is Not Guilty. We talked about that, but anything else to add to it? No, I love that in the sequence. You know, it comes down. You know, love comes to everyone. Like, it's like a it's in your face, and it's beautiful and and rocking and and positive, and positive and all of the above. And then comes this dark kind <laughs> of 
slightly, you know, uh, and a very unusual sounding thing for a George Harrison record. Mm-hmm. Were you aware you of know? what the lyrics represented in that song? Did he, did he mention, I, I wrote this about uh, my friends John and Paul? <laughs> 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 uh, he didn't say that. <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> he was a classy guy, George. He didn't really want to hit yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Track number three is Here Comes the Moon. Was this a sequel to Here Comes the Sun? Did he specifically write it as a sequel or did just... He was you know, your guess is good moon. as mine, but oh, okay. I, I think obviously it's connected. It's like he was always making jokes, so <laughs> it's kind of a joke on uh, Here Comes the Sun. Right, right. In a way, you know, and it's so beautiful. And, uh, and lyrically, he could take something that even if he started out with it as humor, and that was George's way, he could start out with something funny but still put these really sweet little poignant lines in the yeah. song and have it have a, a real sweet pretty side too so i think he wrote that in hawaii if i'm not mistaken i can't really it, remember. it sounds like a yeah. hawaii type of written song Definitely. yeah 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 while he was talking about hannah because <laughs> <Yeah. right. laughs> i think he wrote that in maui as well yeah well he yeah. might have some maui wowie yeah, little maui and that's wowie. actually the next song <laughs> yeah soft-hearted yeah. hannah we spoke uh, about. We did speak about based on a mushroom experience from George, <laughs> uh, which well, is nice to see. George was back in the high life again. So, to speak. <laughs> speaking of another artist of yours, Steve Woodward, yeah, who's on the record also in the high life, yeah. <laughs> lovely. Um, and then the fifth one. I didn't mention this, but the first George Harrison album I ever had was this album, and I tremendously love this record, and it's so. This is George pulling away from his rock and roll roots and getting to a more acoustic sheen type of thing. And and Blow Away was the reason I bought the record because I'd seen a video of it on yeah. one of the video shows. Early video shows. Might have been Don Kirshner or something. Yeah. But, totally humorous, humorous video. Oh, totally George. Yeah. And I, and I love the song. It's such a, a positive song about getting rid of negative things. Yeah. Um, did you find that that was sort of George's nature, Russ? Did you see the spiritual aspect of George in the music? Did you kind of, and, and obviously on a personal level as well? Absolutely. It's, it was a big part of his personality, a big part of who he was. Yeah. Yeah. Inherent in all of the work. Yeah. But it's funny because he was, he was more of a, a good teacher, but not a preacher. Right. So, you know, that, that helps too. Because sometimes when people preach it on you all the time, you step back. Yeah. But he didn't yeah. do that. He actually was very nurturing of that. So yeah. that was kind of good. Yeah. yeah. And through the music as well. So Back uh, when there were LPs uh, exclusively, <laughs> you would flip over side one and side two would start off. Was Faster specifically chosen to be the leadoff song uh, or was there sort of a continuing thing from Blow Away? You know, I can't really remember the process of how we sequenced it. I think George primarily had the idea... Well, I would think probably some, faster. something to do with the special effects, possibly as well, bringing in the yeah. you know the racing effect too to start off the side. Yeah, you know, it just seemed again so logical. Oh, it does start a little low. Yeah, it, it, it starts it, quietly and builds into yeah. the, the. But you know, the other the other thing is that if you think about it, in the LP sequence, yeah, if that appeared in the middle of side two or in the middle of side one, it, it wouldn't work. Right, it would have sounded so it had awkward. To stand, yeah. Had to stand alone. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I don't think you would have had as much uh, sound effect in the beginning. No, you wouldn't have been able to really bring that whole thing out, I don't think. And we've talked a bit about Dark Sweet Lady, which was the next song. Yeah. And uh, anything else to add on on Dark Sweet Lady? That solo was just incredible. Yeah. 
Isn't it fantastic? Yes. <laughs> just beautifully recorded and just beautifully done. And I know you said in prior interviews that George, you know, used to really think about the solos and then redo them. And uh, so, you know, I don't know what he did with this one, but it obviously came out incredible. I don't think he belabored that one. I think that was a rather, rather quick performance. Well, that's great um, because he's talking about something he loves. Yeah, from the heart. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah. was going to ask you, the song um, is obviously about Olivia, and you're still friends with Olivia. Has she ever commented on that song? It's uh, such a obvious song about her. Not that some of the others aren't, but to me, that one's very obvious. And, and the next yeah. song, too. Has she ever commented on that song? Um, any of the songs? Not to my, not okay. my memory. She may have said something about it back then, because I yeah. think we may have talked about it. Yes. And then it goes to Your Love is Forever, which we talked we about. Talked about. Right. And then uh, Soft Touch. I, uh, I love Your Love is Forever. The whole thing, even the high part where he says, I feel it in my heart, you know, it's just beautifully sung. You feel the emotion in that song. And the solo is so beautiful. Well, yeah, that too. Uh, and, you know, Del Newman did the strings, their strings on it. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, again, you know, we say that about every song on that album, but the album was... Can you tell us it's our favorite Harrison record, Russ? (laughs) But also, the the, the, the opening has some sort of phasing on the the chords, because it doesn't just sound like a a strumming acoustic. It has something else on it. Then maybe that chorus. Yeah, it's it's his electric guitar going through the chorus. Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's doubled. Oh, okay. 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 There you go. Great songs. And then Soft Touch. Soft Touch? Soft Touch? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having a lot of fun during the recording of that because, you know, layering guitars and doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I like it. Newmark plays you great know? drums on it, too. Yeah, that's true. That has that really nice, great drum track on it, too. Yeah. And then the last track uh, is actually uh, co written with Gary Wright, If You yep, Believe. If You Believe. And um, from what I heard, or from what I remember talking to Gary Wright, it's in his book also, he sort of came in and helped George with the middle part of the song. And yes. he also plays on it, too. Um, That's right. Yeah, we had a great time with him in there. And, you know, the other person on this record who uh, did a lot of percussion work was Ray Cooper. A good friend uh-huh. of George's, yeah. 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 Well, actually went on to co-produce the next album somewhere in England with George. Right. Incredible percussionist. How his hands have and, and, and as incredible a human being as well. Oh, that's that's good to hear. We never get to really yeah. hear that. You just yeah. you see him, yeah. you know, with George, and he's kind of silly. And, well, and you see the of... madman when he's out with Elton doing oh, those yeah. two person shows, and it's oh, and now yeah. the crazy person comes in, and he's he's so dynamic and fun to watch, and just you know, yeah, what he, a musician, uh, unbelievable. And he was in Eric Clapton's band when we yeah. were doing Twenty Four Nights. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was there and for then, I was there for a bunch of those actually. Oh really? No kidding. Yeah, I was, I was there yeah. for four of those. What a what an amazing run of shows that was. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> and, and that's what a uh, time. and that's <laughs> the end of the LP. Uh, when it was re released, uh, there were two bonus tracks. There was a demo of "Here Comes the Moon," and then for iTunes only, which we're not fans of iTunes, but uh, <laughs> there was also the demo of "Blow Away." So two of the songs you heard, or variations of them, you now were those were, from, released. were those from copies that the family had, Russ, or did you have the only cassette of the demo? No, no, it, uh, he gave me a copy, so he okay. had you know he, he had oh, okay. the you know the quarter inch, right? Probably right. Of, the family you know, had his mixes, yeah. Got it. Got I'm it. sure it's in the archives. Everything's in the archives. Uh. You mentioned Save the World. Was there any other songs that you recorded but never got around to? No. No. Just Save the World was the other one? Yeah. And I don't think we even, we didn't cut it. We didn't even do a track of it. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I, don't, just, I don't think 
my memory's a little vague on it, but I'm pretty sure we didn't record that song for... Yeah, it was. in other words, it was probably pulled from demo stage. It was probably, eh, this isn't really going to fit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Because yeah. that song would, it just... It doesn't fit it, the mood. Would not have fit the mood of this record. No. It's yeah. an up song, but it's also a little darker. Yeah. And then this yeah, album yeah. was a very bright, bright album. This album, we always say, you know, when you have an album that uh, you affiliate with a, with a season, I always say this is like a spring or a summer album because it just gives you that up positive feeling that you get in the spring and Came summer. Came out in February, but it was still a spring-summer record for, yeah, me, so for me, yeah. too. Yeah. The, yeah. Were, you, were you surprised? Yeah. I mean, it did well. It went gold here in, in America, but were you surprised that, like, Blow Away wasn't a bigger hit? Or even, I know Love Comes to Everyone was a single, the next one, and Faster was only released in the U.K., yeah. but... I mean, were you surprised that it didn't have as much legs as as you had hoped, or he had hoped? Uh, yes, I was a little surprised. I thought it was going to do better than it did, but it did well. You know, it's, oh, yeah. it was a substantial showing, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, critically, it did very well. Yeah, it was probably the highest reviewed album since All Things Was Passed. Yeah. And yeah. I think it also yeah. has held up in terms of the the fan base. It's not dated. It's not dated at all. But it, but it, not even from a musical standpoint, from, you know, holding up. But I think it's the fan base has yeah. has hooked on to this this album in in a really big way, which well, is a lot wonderful. Of, uh, well, a lot of what's what's great about it is that you know there are some Harrison albums and some Harrison songs that and all musicians have this but some of them are dated and this one there's not that typical 80s you know synthesizer like you use right. later so right. this one just keeps going it could have been recorded now and yeah. it's very acoustic yeah. if this was re-released today it would be played on americana stations very easily nice you know, you know. yeah nice. very natural sounding organic thank you for that <laughs> yeah, th- yeah exactly <laughs> Well, okay, you guys. I, we appreciate it, Russ, and uh, we will hopefully talk to you again soon. And for this edition of Fab Four Free For All, this has been your moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me has been... Rob Leonard. And... Tony Chiguardo. And our guest on the phone, thank you so much to Russ Teitelman. We appreciate the time. Thank you, and it was a real pleasure doing this. Thank, thank you so much, Russ. We'll talk to you soon. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.